Father God, bless us this morning as I speak from your scriptures. Give me wise and holy words that those who hear may be built up and spurred on in love and obedience to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let me start by showing you a clip from a computer game I played a decade ago or so. Forget who is the boss of you. Me! I am the boss of you. I am the boss of you. I am the boss of you. We're happy. We're happy. Now tell me, tell me, after all of that, is this guy a hero or a villain? How can you tell? Is he a hero or a villain? Come on. He's a villain, surely. You know, I am the boss of you. Doesn't that perfectly sum up the stereotypical 20th century villain? To be the boss of you is the ultimate act of villainy. And freedom, well, freedom is the ultimate good. And as we all know, all modern wisdom eventually finds its way onto a T-shirt. On the train the other day, I saw a girl wearing a T-shirt that captures this idea perfectly. Can you read that? No? Oh, dear. Property of no one. Property of no one. I am my own person. I belong to no one. I answer to no one. I am truly free. We can mute that now, by the way. Or are you? Goodbye. Thank you. Or are you? And is freedom all it's cracked up to be? Rather than turn to the wisdom of T-shirts or 1990s computer games, let's turn to the scriptures. So my first point is that the scriptures clearly teach that freedom is a gift and blessing from God. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Okay, can someone tell me where that's from? Want someone? Isaiah. Isaiah, yep, well done. Isaiah 61.1. It's also, it's also quoted in Luke 4 to describe Jesus and his mission. Jesus has come to liberate the captives and bring freedom for God's people. Look, this isn't an isolated idea. It comes up frequently in Isaiah and all through the Old and New Testaments. I mean, consider the Exodus. It's not unreasonable to suggest that there are two defining stories for the Hebrew nation. The first, the first is the promises given to Abraham and the patriarchs. And the second... The rescue from Egypt, freedom from the land of slavery. How does God name himself in Exodus? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's how he wants to be known to his people. And then if we turn to the New Testament, in John 8, the truth will set you free. And if the Son sets you free... You are free indeed. In Hebrews, Jesus shares in our humanity so he may break the power of the devil who holds the power of death. And so Jesus sets free those who are in slavery to the fear of death. 
In 2 Corinthians, Paul declares, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Moreover, in Christ, we're set free from the bonds of the law. In Romans 8, Paul declares that the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And Galatians 4. Galatians 4 is an extended discussion on how God's promises in Jesus set us free from slavery of the law, concluding with, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Freedom is a core scriptural theme. God's agenda is setting his people free. But why stop there? Surely if freedom is the work of God, then to bring freedom is to do God's, God's work. And if freedom is lacking, then surely this is unjust and evil. So one modern expression of this is liberation theology. Some of you may have heard about it. It's a movement, particularly in South America, that has its roots in Catholic teaching that focuses on meeting the needs of the poor. And since poverty is slavery and stands in opposition to the rich and powerful, influential strands of liberation theology provided tacit or even open support for various people's rebellions throughout South America and Africa. The idea here is that to have power over another is to enslave them, and this must be opposed and defeated by any means available. But in the West, this doctrine of absolute freedom can take a very different form. God wants us to be free, and God wants us to be happy. Therefore, injustice and evil is anything that stands in the way of my freedom and happiness. My needs should be provided for, my desires indulged, and I should be free to choose what I do with my body and my life. This is not selfishness, it's freedom. Is anyone thinking that just maybe I'm oversimplifying? I've got a couple of nods there, that's good, that's reassuring. That I've missed something? In the name of freedom, the two great commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbour of yourself, have become synonymous with the pagan read, do as ye will as long as it harms none. You see, our culture teaches us that freedom and authority stand opposed to each other that the one seeks to make war on the other. Our culture teaches us that love is genuine and obedience is coercion. And yet, and yet, speaking to his disciples before his crucifixion, Jesus says to them, anybody who loves me will obey my teaching. Conversely, in his letters, John teaches that God's love is made complete in the one who obeys. Our culture teaches us that love and obedience are competitors. To have one is to deny the other. The scriptures teach that love and obedience are partners and walk hand in hand. Authority itself is not an ungodly concept. If you've been alert, you might have noticed it already. When the first century... paraphrasing from the introduction to your NIVs and the pews if you want to read it later. When the first century Hebrews read from their scriptures, they wrote the name of God as Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, but spoke it as Adonai, Lord. 
And the scriptures often link these ideas. Adonai Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. Yahweh Sabaoth, sorry if I've mangled the pronunciation, Lord over the hosts, both the powers of heaven and the armies of Israel, which is translated in your NIV as the Lord Almighty. And even, coupling them all together, Adonai Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord, the Lord Almighty. The very name of God denotes absolute and unchallengeable authority. And this continues seamlessly into the New Testament. Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, God saves, King, anointed King. And because of this, there's a political aspect to the Gospel. But it's not fundamentally left versus right or tax rates or whether the government should do welfare or whether we should be a republic. The political core of the gospel is much, much bigger than that, for it claims authority over societies and politics and governments. The gospel is not be good and kind to each other, though that is an outworking of it. The gospel is not God wants you to be free, but that also is an outworking of it. At the core of the gospel is the eternal truth that Jesus Christ has been raised from death and rules as king and judge over this world until the day of judgment. We call him king of kings and lord of lords, but we fail to appreciate what this means. Jesus is powerful and mighty to save his people because he is the absolute ruler over heaven and earth and the day is coming when every last skerrick of resistance to this rule will be ruthlessly obliterated. The world groans awaiting its liberation. But that liberation is both reconciliation with its Lord and Master and the cleansing, the purging of everything that stands opposed to him. We had Psalm 2 read, it warns. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the sun or he will be angry and, you will, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The gospel is a call to repent, to be reconciled to him who rules and to love and obey him. Now, when I was talking about freedom, did you notice what I glossed over? Paul's discussions of law and freedom and slavery in Romans don't recognise just one law, but two. Not just one master, but two. In Romans 8... Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. In Romans 6, we have been set free from being slaves to sin and are now slaves to righteousness. We were once free from the control of righteousness, but now are free from sin and slaves of God. Twice, Paul reminds the Corinthians that they are not their own, they were bought with a price. Now look, slavery to righteousness is certainly not the only image of salvation 
but it is one we ignore at our peril. We are either under the control of sin or the control of God. We are slaves to sin or slaves to God. We are the people of the devil or the people of God. We are not called to freedom from all authority, but are set free from the cruel and deadly authority of sin to be brought back under the true and trustworthy and loving authority of God. Finally, God does not reserve authority for himself alone. God's authority is given to mankind, manifests in mankind, and is an integral part of our creation. Come with me to Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. In our very first introduction to man, there are two attributes ascribed to him. He is in God's image and he will rule the world. Verses 27 and 28 of Genesis 1 repeat these two and at a third and a fourth, male and female reproduce. In God's image, rule, male and female reproduce. Authority is tied up with who we are as humans. And not just humans over animals, humans over humans. Our obedience to human authority reinforces our obedience to God's authority and our correct handling of authority participates in the authority granted to us by God. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, bring your children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Christians, submit to your leaders. Leaders, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Slaves, obey your earthly masters as working for the Lord. Masters, remember that you also have a master in heaven. Be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority that except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So raise your hand if you like paying taxes. Okay? Got a few, got a few, but for the most part, no, most of us don't like paying taxes. Okay, raise your hand if you like obeying laws. That's a tougher one, isn't it? Have a brief think about how much say people should have over their laws. Most people in this room, most people in this room have more political influence in national policy than in just about every cult, other culture in history. In fact, it's become fashionable to talk about the consent of the governed. We agree to give up some of our freedom to the government for the common good, and it is this consent that gives it the authority to govern. Well, while there are good points to it, it is not at heart a biblical idea. The response of the people may help reveal whether the government is good, but biblical authority to govern comes from appointment, not democracy. Now, this is not to grant absolute authority to governments. 
The Psalms warn that we should not put our trust in princes, but should instead take refuge in the Lord. Peter and John and Paul all refused to follow commands that they not speak about Jesus, humbly reminding the authorities that the authority of God sits above the authority that they hold. When the people of Israel are oppressed by foreigners, God sometimes sends an external saviour and sometimes raises up a judge to overthrow the oppressors. Moreover, I suspect that Peter and Paul's injunctions to obey the authorities are somewhat a reaction to their political situation. There is a suspicion on the part of the various authorities that these, this new Christian thing is a dangerous sect seeking to challenge the power of Caesar. But the kingdom of God is not established through worldly uprising. And getting involved in a political struggle with Rome will distract the nascent church from what really matters. Nonetheless, nonetheless, the Christian life is to be characterised by a disposition towards submission to right authority, and that includes the government. The scriptures understand government as a force for good in society, even when that government is inevitably somewhat corrupt. What's the summary line that runs through Judges? In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. And if you're familiar with Judges, you'll know that this is not a flattering description. Even a poor king is better than no king. And so the apostles urge their people to submit to the government for pragmatic reasons and for moral ones. For the government is God's agent for law and justice in society and is owed respect, even when it fails to execute. Because an attitude of resentment towards authority, and in this context towards government, is an expression of sin. Just as for Eve in the garden, we feel that we are missing out. We want to be the ones in control. Yes, there will be a time and place to resist authority in the name of Christ. But is that what is really happening? Or is it an excuse for your rebellious heart? When the teachers of the law rock up to Jesus and ask whether the Mosaic law is compatible with paying taxes to Caesar, they're not really trying to solve a moral problem. But notice Jesus' answer. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Imagine I've got a coin here, I meant to hold one up. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Pay your dues to the government which has minted your coins and rules over your nation and pay your dues to God who has minted you in his own image and rules over every aspect of your life. Now, freedom is a good thing. Paul instructs Christians who are freedmen not to sell themselves into slavery. And to those who are slaves, he recommends becoming free men if the opportunity arises. And yet, he downplays the importance of worldly freedom. The freedom that matters eternally is that which, is, which frees us from slavery to sin and makes us the property of God. Now, to those in this world owned by good and godly masters, whether governments or bosses or parents, rejoice. Rejoice. A good master is a blessing from God. A blessing from God. And humble service to your worldly masters is pleasing to him and commanded by him. 
It is not your freedom from authority that marks your worth as a human. Every human is under authority and being under authority does not dehumanise you. But what if you are under cruel authority? Firstly, firstly, submit as best you can. Yes, I know that's a hard call, but ensure that you are not contributing to the situation by harbouring a rebellious spirit. Our worldly inclination is to use the failure of others to justify our own sins. But the apostles teach and practice otherwise. Secondly, cry out to God. Cry out to God. The history of scripture is a history of God rescuing the oppressed and bringing them into a good and pleasant land with gentle and godly rulers. God saves from the oppression of sin and the oppression of evil rulers. Thirdly, escape if you can. Christians are martyred for the gospel every day and in the next age they will receive blessing and recompense from God's hand. The scriptures promise this. But those who flee are not sinning and it may often be the wise course of action. And if you know someone who is suffering under evil authority, consider how you can support them. Don't just walk away thinking, phew, I'm glad it's them and not me. Think of ways that you can lend them your strength and pray for them. Finally, let me speak to those who wield worldly authority, especially in the political realm. Remember that the authority you wield ultimately comes from God and God demands a high standard for those who represent him, whether they be preachers or kings or even just the local roadworks traffic controller. Love justice. Love mercy. Defend the cause of the powerless. But look first and foremost to God for guidance, for the world will lie to you about freedom and truth. In closing, do not seek to be masterless or to be only your own master. Seek good masters and most of all the Lord Jesus Christ who died to save us, has been raised as ruler and is calling us, calling all of us, to belong to him as his people, as his nation, under his rule forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. Father God, thank you that you have rescued us and saved us and brought us out of the kingdom of darkness into your kingdom of light. Father God, give us submissive hearts to love and obey you and to likewise act in obedience towards our worldly masters. For those of us who have authority, may we use it in a way that would please you for those of us under authority, may we serve in a way that would please you. And we ask all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.